I am speaking normally right now. I'm currently speaking normally right now. You're using your podcast voice. I usually have a podcast voice. I said Now we're doing radio announcer, and oh God, we're dipping down to transatlantic radio announcer. Oh God. Oh, jolly golly willikers. Back when the Titanic was a thing. Can you believe it? The women want the vote. All right, losers. Welcome to episode four. <laughs> Why are they losers? I don't know. <laughs> Thank you for listening. It just felt good to say. You're not a loser. What's up, you beautiful people? Hello, gorgeous. Yeah. Do you feel good today? <laughs> Welcome to our mental health podcast. It's about butts, mostly. <laughs> so I have a lot of updates for you. Okay. My body's ready. Um, it's like a 25-year story, mm-hmm. and there were so many characters involved, and I had to kind of whittle it down so it didn't take four hours. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff I kind of regret leaving out, and so I'm going to kind of run through some of that stuff. Okay. And this is not about the sharks, by the way. I pretty thoroughly covered the <laughs> sharks. It was the... Uh, I only have one shark update, and that's uh, re- mostly because I needed more updates to keep up with you. Regarding the Grim Sleeper is what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, the first thing I left out, uh, I left out all of the suspected victims, because there's so mm-hmm. fucking many of them. There's like over 100 possibly could have been a victim. There's only one male suspected victim of the Grim Sleeper. Interesting. Um, He was found in the same neighborhood as all the rest of the women, like right near Franklin's house. Yeah. His name was Thomas Sylvester Steele, 36 years old. He was found on August 14th, 1986. His name was Robert Paulson. Inappropriate. Sorry. (laughs) Tom Steele, Mm -hmm. badass name. Yeah. He was found nearby in that same neighborhood and he'd been shot in the chest with a 25 caliber handgun, just like all the women. Interesting. They never conclusively linked it to Lonnie, but they suspect, because this was within days of a couple of the other murders, mm-hmm. that Thomas Steele may have found out who Lonnie Franklin was, oh. confronted him and got shot. Or like he witnessed him. Yeah, something like Interesting. that. Interesting. Because he's the only male victim yeah, of that's all of them. Very out of his MO. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Like, my major update, like I said, I have two Shark Week episode updates. One, <laughs> fuck the engineering department. Come on. You made me sound like shit. I had the microphone set wrong, which is why I sound like a sexy radio announcer the whole episode, and Sarah sounds I like... I sound like I'm talking like this. She sounds like she's shouting at the end of a sewer pipe. <laughs> Hello, let me tell you about Shark Week. Yes, your chief engineer let you down. It's okay. Comms will let you down at some point, but I just wanted to call you out because it's fun. Yeah, if anybody was wondering, I yeah. fucked up. <laughs> Yeah, so you asked, after we recorded last time, about no humans involved, about how the cops could just write no humans involved on a police report and get away with it. That's because that's not a legal term. It was just what the cops used to sort of refer to these cases, Mm -hmm. and it spread outside of the LAPD. They ended up finding other police departments also using NHI. Oh. Yeah. That's horrible. Yeah, it is. But it was not ever a legal term. It was a massively illegal term. It was just internal police jargon. So it's a post-it note that they put on be like, just don't, this isn't worth it. Exactly. It we don't care. It literally meant to them, this is a case entirely involving minorities. Don't bother with it. Fucking Christ. That's... Okay. Yeah. I keep mispronouncing a singer's name. Yes, you do. Because you keep making fun of me for it. Karen Dreyer. That is who I've been talking about. What were you calling her before? Karen Dreyer. And I have said it incorrectly, I think, since I was like 12 and started listening to her. Mm. Uh, so that is my fault. I'm sorry. Sorry to the Swedish people. Sorry to Karin. <laughs> you, have to, you have to shout, I apologize to the Swedish people. I apologize to the Swedish people. <laughs> I finally didn't fuck it up. Yay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, okay, so this is actually kind of a big one. I intentionally left out a lot of names and background on the cops involved in the Grim Sleeper case, because, mm-hmm. again, I was trying not to focus on the cops. They fucked up. But this one guy is pretty interesting. So the police chief at the time in the 80s that Margaret Prescott mm-hmm. was fighting, the guy trying to cover this up and sort of disregard it, and Prescott was out there protesting against him, was Police Chief Daryl Gates. Okay. And that name might sound familiar. 
because he is probably one of the most famous police chiefs of all time. Oh. So he was the chief of police of L.A. for 14 years, 1978 to 1992. It was a long time. And depending on sort of what end of the political spectrum you come from, also what time we're talking about him and what race you are, you will Mm. have very different opinions of this guy. Okay, so a polarizing figure. Very much so. Okay. At the time, he was widely hailed as the best chalip... Chalupa? The best chalupa. I almost said chalice peef. (laughs) (laughs) At the time, he was hailed as the best police chief in the country. Wow. Because he was famously tough on crime. Remember, this is tough on crime 80s and 90s. This is... Wasn't that asshole from Texas? Tough on drugs. pardon also... Arpaio. Yes. He's a Joe Arpaio type. Okay. So some people think he's amazing and great, and some people are like, this is Hitler. This is Daryl Gates. So tough on crime 80s and 90s, the war on drugs, all that shit where we were really cracking down on the drugs, you know, all that Reagan stuff. He was kind of the figurehead of it. He was the first police chief to militarize his police department. Oh, great. It started in L.A. with Daryl Gates, and then other cities kind of followed suit, like mm-hmm. New York and such. But he was really the first one to give them, like, military-grade weapons. And instead of being community policing, like, you know the streets, it was more like, you are, you know, the local enforcement. That was his great. attitude. Yeah, well, so like I said, polarizing. He was the co-creator of SWAT teams, Daryl Gates and another guy. Really? Yep. Oh, I didn't know that. And also the co-founder of D.A.R.E., the drug program. Oh, shut up. Yep. Are you fucking kidding me? Because we all know how well Dare works. Not getting into that right now. <laughs> Don't distract me. Um, so obviously, like, you know, at the time he was hailed as this awesome police hero cleaning up the streets. And then later assessments have been much less favorable. Um, looking back, he was responsible for a lot of unfairly long sentences. So mm-hmm. these guys in jail for 35 years for one bag of weed. He was also responsible for a lot of false convictions. They'd solve the crime by scooping a guy up they didn't like and throwing him in jail. Yep. Uh, Margaret Prescott's Black Coalition fighting back serial murderers. He referred to them as a bunch of asinine dummies. Oh, great. Unlike your police force, which did so much to solve this murder. Well, he ended up having to resign because he was the chief of police of LA in 1992 during the Rodney King beating Uh, and the subsequent riots. Okay. Where his officers that he defended Mm -hmm. beat the hell out of Rodney King and the riots afterwards where the police miserably failed to respond. Yeah, he resigned after that. And in 1992, he won the Ig Nobel Peace Prize. You know, the Ig Nobels? Yes. Yeah, (laughs) Like the anti-Nobel Prize for you're a dumbass? Yeah. He won the 1992 Ig Nobel Peace Prize for his uniquely compelling methods of bringing people together. (laughs) (laughs) I love awards like that. That's what I got on Daryl Gates. Okay, interesting. Um, Tony Hughes, who is Franklin Floyd's wife slash abuse victim, was also known as Sharon Marshall, which is the name that she was under when he was raising her as his daughter when she was in elementary and high school. Yes. So if you look up any articles, Tony Hughes... And Sharon Marshall are the same person. That'll be helpful. Yes. Her original name is Suzanne Savakis. So Tonya, Sharon, and Suzanne are all the same person. And she was the girl that Floyd originally kidnapped from his first marriage with the four kids. Right. I looked this up because I was interested Mm -hmm. in it. And it was like Sharon so-and-so's high school photo that you sent me. And I was like, who the fuck is Sharon Marshall? It's Sharon Marshall's high school photo. That's the name. Who was later known as Tonya Hughes when Mm -hmm. she was killed. And originally was born into this world as Suzanne Savakis, who he had kidnapped as a child. It is an extremely confusing thing, but yes, if you're trying to research it, Tonya Hughes, Sharon Marshall, Suzanne Savakis, all the same person, all the victim, singular victim of Franklin Floyd. It's very confusing, but I wanted to point that out. He had like six names too, yeah. Yeah, he has a million names, but I want to point that out in case you wanted to research her case further, that those are all different terms you're going to find her under, (laughs) because it's still technically unsolved. That makes sense. Yeah, so. Um, Fun fact, 
<laughs> is it actually fun? None okay. of these are fun. Okay. Sad fact. So, you know how uh, we talked shit about them calling them the Strawberry Murders because it's super condescending. And it breaks my heart, yes. Well, right. But that wasn't the actual name of the task force. The, the name of the task force was the Southside Slayer Task Force, mm-hmm. which is way cooler and less shitty. Yeah. Turns out the only reason they were called the Southside Slayer Task Force is because Margaret Prescott pressured them into changing their name. Their original name was the Prostitute Killer Task Force. Are you kidding me? Nope. The only reason they're called the Southside Slayer Task Force was Margaret Prescott was like, are you fucking kidding? You can't She's call She's amazing. You can't call the prostitute killer task force. And they were like, shit. <laughs> I mean, it's better than like, we don't give a shit about their lives. And so we're barely going to research this until someone forces us to do our jobs task force. Yeah, right. That sounds like the dead hose squad. Nobody's going to that. That still sh- would sound better. Moving on. That's okay. what I got. Okay. So as I mentioned, Suzanne Zabakis, victim, Franklin had originally kidnapped the four kids from his first wife, dropped off the two middle girls, kept the oldest daughters. We found out later. They did never find the one-year-old named Philip. We assume he killed him, right? That is, yeah. So I just want to clarify that it's not like he has multiple kidnapped people. He didn't also raise a little boy. Definitely was not interested in boys. Yeah, I was Um, wondering what happened to him, but I assume the answer is we don't fucking know. The FBI assumes that Philip was killed very shortly after he kidnapped Suzanne. Right, well. And started grooming her. Michael was. Yeah, that's kind of the indication, especially since he admitted that very quickly he got upset and annoyed at Michael and killed him within like hours of having kidnapped him. Also, you go through all the effort to kidnap- guy like that can't handle a toddler? Right. Shocking. (laughs) But it's like, you go through all that effort to kidnap the kid, basically just to prove a point because you're a fucking crazy person, and then you kill him because you're upset that he's talking back to you. Fucking nutjobs. Anyways, Well, that's why Floyd's a piece of shit. We went over that. He is a piece of shit. Philip is presumed dead by the FBI. The case is technically, of course, a cold case or still open, but nobody thinks he's alive. Yeah, I wouldn't. Um, Franklin doesn't have a great track. I was hoping that'd be happier, too. <laughs> uh, my updates are not happy, but my story is. Oh, good. So, like I said, there's a bunch of weird side stories in this story that I mm-hmm. left out. I left out uh, this guy, Ricky Ross. So, he was a sheriff's detective at the time. Ricky. The late 80s when these original murders were going on. Mm-hmm. In February 1989, he was wrongfully accused of the murders. What? Uh, so, what happened? Of the Grim Sleeper murders? Yes. And he's a police officer? Yes. He... Plot twist! Here's what happened to my boy, Ricky Ross. Okay. Uh, he got caught off duty in his squad car smoking crack with a sex worker. Oh, okay. You know, he likes to party. Ross Boss does what he wants. Rick Ross. His yeah. name is fucking Rick, Rick Ross. Ross. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Um, Acceptable. And they found a 9 millimeter pistol in the car, which at the time they said matched the victims. They thought they had the killer at that point. Mm-hmm. And poor Ricky Ross spent three months in jail. As a it- cop? Yeah, well, no, he got he oh, lost his job, and they put him good. in jail for three months. That's dangerous. Until ballistics finally came back and said, oh, yeah, no, we were just completely fucking wrong. Uh, like, they just fucked up. I don't even think they really looked at probably the not. guns. Well, the thing is, Ricky Ross is a black man. Oh, for fuck's sake. And they put him in jail for three months. I said this Daryl Gates guy had a lot of false convictions, right? So Literally one of his own staff. Well, eventually they reviewed the ballistics and said, okay, yeah, they were shot with a twenty-five caliber gun, and this is a 9 mil. This is not even vaguely the same bullet. And so they let him out of jail. I mean, at that point, just commute his sentence for doing blow on the job. Yeah, well, he was never a police officer again. That's great. Yeah. My turn? Uh, yes. Okay. I did not speak about Suzanne raises Sharon's intervening years between being a kid and getting married to five to 18 you have skipped yeah. yeah well it didn't really fit within the narrative that I was working with or the like shock factor of his wife is his daughter who's also a victim well, that's why I left out Ricky Ross and Daryl Gates right exactly I was like it's interesting but not part of the story we're focusing on which is that Franklin's a fuck anyway fucking Floyd fuck God, I hate this asshole. Um, She did attend school. The earliest record was an elementary school that he enrolled her in in 1975, so when she was six, which I find really interesting that, like, 
he kidnaps a girl to basically groom and abuse, but then also still enrolls her in school, which is a lot of control to have over a six-year-old. That's because he didn't want to take care of the fucking kid all day. I, you know... I don't think he really cared about her education. No, he cared about the body that he was having access to, which I mean, sounds horrible, he cared about yes. having eight hours a day where he'd have to take care of her. Exactly. But also, that's a lot to entrust that a kid is not going to try to run away or something like that. that is some severe mental abuse and grooming that he did. Because she, from age six to 19, when she was impregnated and they ran away and where I started the story, never tried to escape as far as we know, had friends, was extremely bubbly in high school. She went to four different high schools from Arizona to Georgia. She had friend groups. She interned at like a summer camp. There are people who knew her and had no idea what was going on. So I find that really interesting that she just, you know, didn't say anything, didn't do anything, had no idea. I think she probably believed that he was her father at that point. At some point, yeah, that had to be a reality, right? I would assume so. That's so dark. Which also at that point, then you married your dad. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Ooh, no. This is... Happy, okay. Happy days are here again. All right. So... Another cop I wanted to talk about and not leave out of the story completely is this guy, Detective Cliff Shepard. Cliff Shepard is one of the good guys. Cliff! He served 37 years on the LAPD. Ooh. In 2001, when the LAPD formed their cold case unit, because at that point DNA was so prominent, they mm. needed a unit to go back and look at old cases. Good. Detective Cliff Shepard was one of the first of, I believe, six guys who were on the cold case unit. Went through all this old evidence and figured out how to do testing. He is credited with convicting Rodney Alcala, the dating game killer. Oh, okay. He also convicted Chester Turner, who was one of the six men at the time that they kind of blanketed, said they were a Southside Slayer. Oh, okay. Because they thought it was all one guy. Yeah. Chester Turner was one of the most egregious of the guys who was actually doing it. Mm -hmm. You know, besides the Grim Sleeper, he's got dozens of victims. Mm -hmm. So he got that fucking guy. And the most important thing about him getting Chester Turner was that his conviction exonerated a mentally disabled man named David Allen Jones who had been in jail wrongfully for 11 years for those same murders. Fuck me. Because he was uh, slow, the cops coerced him into a false confession mm. for the murders committed by Chester Turner, and he was in jail for over a decade. Jesus. Detective Cliff Shepard, who got that guy out of jail and convicted Chester Turner, was also the first one to identify the Grim Sleeper DNA, but it wasn't on number 10, Janisha Peters. Mm -hmm. It was on the one before that, four years before that. He found DNA on Valerie McCorvey okay. that matched Princess Bertha Mew, the young mm -hmm. gal, the 15-year-old gal they found, yeah. and the 80s cases. Mm -hmm. But at the time, there was no DNA database yet. Okay. He found that match in 2003, which said this guy's still on the loose, but they had nothing to test it against. They didn't start the criminal DNA database until 2004. So the police chief at the time, this guy called William Bratton, told him to keep it under wraps mm -hmm. because they didn't have anything to they test it against. With it. Right? Yeah. yeah. Four years later... When Janisha Peters' body was found with DNA on her that matched all of them again. Okay. By this point, there was a DNA database. And so Cliff Shepard is the one who connected all of these together. Hmm. And that's what prompted Chief Bratton to create the 800 Task Force. Okay. Boo Squad! Boo Squad! <laughs> <laughs> Of which Cliff Shepard was a member. Oh. And so nine years later, he got to be part of the task force that actually took Lonnie Franklin down. Oh, that must have been so satisfying. Right? Oh. Detective Cliff Shepard. To Cliff Shepard. So that's one of the good ones. I like it. Mm. Uh, thank you for lifting my spirits a little bit. So, uh, Sharon. Slash Susan. Sharon slash Susan slash Tonya. Tonya. Yes. Got it. Um, the three main Now ones. I got it, finally. Tonya, Sharon, Suzanne. Yeah. She did actually graduate from high school. Yeah. In Forest Park, Georgia in 1986. She had actually been accepted into the Georgia Institute of Technology, and she was planning to study aerospace engineering. Damn, okay. This was a smart chick. She was a very smart lady. Uh, and a survivor. Very studious. Hella survivor. Unfortunately, she did not get to go to college, but I thought that was kind of a 
really cool thing to respect about her life that she, you know, got into college and was going to study aerospace engineering. Oh, you got pretty much the shittest end of the stick you could get. Yeah. It's impressive you were able to accomplish that much. And still managed to do better in high school than I did. Go Suzanne. I thought that was pretty cool. Oh, uh, I didn't include this because I didn't know it at the time and I read it later and I should have included it because it's fucking amazing. Mm -hmm. So Ingrid. Mm-hmm. We don't know her last name because she was a minor at the time. Her privacy is her privacy. But Ingrid, the German gal, mm-hmm. who uh, Lonnie Franklin and yes. two of the guys serving with him sexually assaulted. And then Lonnie got caught for it and discharged. Mm-hmm. There's more to it. So what happened was they drove her out to where they did their dickhead bullshit. Mm-hmm. And then as they were driving her back, she realized she has to find a way to get these guys in trouble for this. Uh-huh. And so she convinces Lonnie Franklin to give her his phone number. As if she wants to see him again. And yeah. he's so fucking dumb, he does it. <laughs> and she immediately called the police and worked with the police to organize a sting to catch him. Shut the at front a tr- door. At a train station where she called Lonnie and said, hey, I'd like to see you again. Meet me at this train station. He shows up like a dumb shit. Cops jump out and they arrest him. Good. And he served one year in German jail because mm-hmm. Ingrid fucking pulled a sting operation on him with the cops. That's amazing. And then she also traveled from Germany during his, like, final series yeah, of Yeah, she showed up 35-odd years later to put him in jail later. But at the time, she's the one who got arrested. She's kind of badass, right? Totally. Um, somebody else, I forgot to mention, the deputy DA, the one who was the prosecutor at Lonnie Franklin's trial mm-hmm. and worked with all these women to convict him, was also a woman. Her name is Beth Silverman. Mm. She has been the deputy DA of L.A. since 1994. In addition to convicting the Grim Sleeper, she also convicted Michael Hughes and Chester Turner, two of the other Southside Slayers, mm-hmm. and she convicted Samuel Little. Oh, no shit. Yeah. Damn. She's got a pretty good resume. Yeah. And she is still serving as the deputy DA today. Big fuck you energy. <laughs> that confused me when you said Michael Hughes, because that was the kid who got kidnapped in my case. Strange I know, coincidence. Right? Yeah. That Fucking did. weird. Strange that you've got a Franklin and I've got a Franklin. One of your you've got victims a was a Michael Hughes. One of my killers was a Michael Hughes. Yeah. It, it, weird. Um, what do you got? It was confusing trying to figure out Tonya, Shan, Suzanne, who impregnated her and how she got pregnant when she was 19 with Michael Hughes. Yes, because you dropped I didn't that explain bomb that. that Floyd wasn't the dad, the dad of the kid. Yes. And then you explained that she wasn't actually his wife. Yes, there was no easy way to slip in without really ruining f- the entire kind of like... Burr, burr, burr. Who, of like, who was Michael's actual dad? Michael's birth father. I'm adopted, so I'm very particular about the language surrounding these things. Bro. You know I am. Get out of here. You live my life and tell me that. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Suzanne, her last year of high school, actually had a boyfriend that I don't doubt that Floyd did not approve of. And she got impregnated by him when she was discovered to be pregnant. That is why Floyd freaked out and moved them to Arizona. Right. Yeah. Yeah, got knocked up at... Appropriately got knocked up, if there is such a thing. Yeah, not by her abuser, dad, father. It's significantly thing. better, yeah. Yeah, um, so the second he realized that she had had sex basically with somebody who was not him, he then freaked out and moved them both to Phoenix, Arizona, killing her idea and career of going to college. And that's when he made her become a dancer and start supporting them in the future kid. So, uh, so Wee Mikey was her kid. Wee Mikey was her kid and a... Most likely sweet boyfriend from somewhere in Georgia. Or at least not a rapey murderer. At least not a rapey murderer. That's our bar here. Yep, I've got a low bar. You're a cool guy if you don't rape or murder. Yep. (laughs) Uh, This is my last one. Okay. And this one I just learned today, actually, Mm. because I hadn't really looked into it. I mentioned that there was a movie made about the case focusing on Christine Pelisek, as well as a documentary focusing on Margaret Prescott. The movie focusing on Christine Pelisek was called The Grim Sleeper from 2014. Mm -hmm. In that movie, Anitra Washington, the survivor who did the sketch Mm -hmm. in the car and everything, uh, she's played by Macy Gray. Really? In the movie. 
Oh, okay. And one of the cops is played by Ernie Hudson from Ghostbusters. What? Um, we need to watch this. I know. So this is what's cool. Anitra Washington, the real Anitra Washington, was invited to the movie premiere. Oh. And met Macy Gray, who played her in the Stop. movie. And at the end of the movie, the entire audience and the cast and crew of the movie gave her a standing ovation. Oh, that's just, really cool. I, I learned that today. I was like, that's fucking random. But it's, it's nice, right? That is a really good tribute to a survivor. Yeah. That is very cool. Fuck yeah, fuck yeah. My last one is much happier and has nothing to do with rape or death. Good. <laughs> um, so during our mini episode that we did, the Pew about Shark Week, we figured out that the deep sea shark researcher that Todd was talking about was the exact same one that I also was talking about. Yeah. Um, we didn't realize they were the same person until talking about it and listening to it afterwards. I read this thing about this guy who caught these sharks. You know, like, I read this other thing about this guy who caught these sharks. Well, then I talked about, I was like, oh yeah, you know, they don't do a lot of specials on Discovery Channel about like deep sea weird sharks. Deep and there's sea only fangly fishies. Exactly. Yeah, yes. Yeah. I was like, I've only seen two. You know, there's one this year and the one I was talking about was the same researcher that Todd was talking about in the article he read, completely unrelated. Finding uh, demon cat sharks in Indonesia? Yes. Yeah. His name is Paul J. Clerkin. Uh, he is a graduate researcher at the Pacific Shark Research Center of Moss Landing Marine Laboratories in Moss Landing, California. He's super cool. If you search Paul J. Clerkin, he's got his entire like CV and research online. He's got a cool website. If you're interested in deep sea sharks or really cool nerds doing cool stuff... Check him out. Yeah, he's got a hell of a resume, and he also yeah, talks he like a bro. He's like, check out these he sharks. He's got yeah. long hair, but he's got like a bunch of published, mm-hmm. peer-reviewed articles and yeah. stuff. Just hangs out with fishermen and gets them to love sharks, too, which is super cool. He's um, like, I just hang out, and I find cool sharks and write about them, bro. Yeah, but I, I thought that was strange that, again, you and I kind of mentally connected and didn't even realize we were talking about the same person, so I thought that was kind of cool. Okay, ho, what do we want to play to decide who goes first? So rather than playing any sort of involved big old card game or board game today, I sort of randomly went through my shit. And today, to determine who goes first, we are playing a Star Wars The Force Awakens bowling game that I got in a Kinder Egg. (laughs) So the way this works is I have this tiny, tiny bust of John Boyega from Star Wars. I love John Boyega! And it's got, like, elastic attached to it, and you're supposed to hurl it at these little tiny stormtrooper targets. Okay. And so I figure whoever knocks down the most wins. Okay. There's there's only three of them, so... All right, so I've got my teeny, tiny John Boyega. This is, like, the worst fucking toy. Okay. I have a score (laughs) of zero. Would you like to take your shot? Um, yeah, sure. (laughs) Got one! You got one target with our crappy Kinder Egg toy. I believe that means you decide. I fucked up the shot, so. Okay. I win. I'm going second. I prefer it. We're going to end on a good note for fucking once, because I'm fucking happy for once. Okay. I'm fucking happy. Okay. So happy. That's okay. I actually want to. I actually kind of want to go first to get my depressing happy. story out of the way. Happy. <laughs> so, are you ready? Yes. Okay. Tell me. I would like to tell you about the Hillsborough disaster. Like Oregon? No. Like England? There you go. Oh, okay. You ever heard of this before? I don't think so. Okay. This is uh, very, very well known in England. Growing up there as a kid, I knew all about it, even though it happened when I was like one. Okay. Uh, first things first, most of the information for this, I got, I, I looked up articles and got stuck on Wikipedia and all that mm-hmm. usual shit we do. But uh, the vast majority of this I learned from a documentary called Hillsborough. Mm-hmm. Came out in 2014 and it was made by ESPN. The... The Sports Network. Okay. They have this incredible documentary series called 30 for 30. 
Now, I'm not like a sports nerd. There's a few teams I like, but I don't know like players' names and shit like that. Huh. I don't play fantasy shit. I don't watch a lot of ESPN is the point. Oh, I'm aware. But 30 for 30 is this documentary series, and it's all about things that are sort of related to sports or are sort of sports adjacent. Mm -hmm. But you don't have to be a sports guy to watch it. Every single thing is fascinating. And they did this amazing two-hour documentary on the Hillsborough disaster. Okay. Well, so the Hillsborough disaster was one of the worst disasters with the highest loss of life in sports history. Oh, okay. And it's one of those stories where there's no single cause. There's not like a terrorist attack. There's no one thing that went wrong. It's just literally a disaster. It was a whole series of small things that all kind of coalesced to cause this. Okay. So the setting for this is 1980s England. Mm -hmm. North England, so not the fancy London side where we all sip tea <laughs> with our pinkies out. Mm -hmm. Talking about the north side, Yorkshire. Some of the southerner Londoners kind of tend to look down on northerners like you're less classy. It's very working class, very blue collar. Okay. The county of Yorkshire which you've heard of, mm -hmm. in a city called Sheffield. Okay. And Sheffield is one of the bigger cities in England. Yeah, it's a bigger city. And it's in a suburb called Hillsborough. Uh, Hillsborough had in it Hillsborough Soccer Stadium, but from henceforth we're going to say football out of respect. Because soccer is a stupid fucking word. Can confirm. <laughs> and nobody in the world uses it. Everywhere. The audacity of everybody, the American. Everybody else calls it football. Yeah. And it's called fucking football. <laughs> <laughs> the Sheffield team is called the Sheffield Wednesday Oh, okay. Because they were founded originally in the early 1880s, and they practiced on Wednesday. That's kind of cute. So they became the Sheffield Wednesday Football Club. Mm -hmm. I love those old-timey British things. There's going to be a lot of that in here. Okay. So Sheffield Wednesday, currently, they're an okay team. They're in England's second division. So mm -hmm. they're not up in the premier division with, like, the big teams you hear about. Manchester United, Chelsea, mm -hmm. Liverpool, Arsenal... Mm -hmm. They're not up there with those teams, but they're second division for the last 20 years or so. But back in the 80s, they were first division. They were a bigger deal. So they had this big-ass stadium. But this story doesn't actually involve their team because they also have a long history of hosting the national finals. They're called the FA Cup. Okay. The national football finals for all of the British teams because they're neutral ground. So okay. it's sort of like the Super Bowl. The stadium they play in is never one of the team's stadium, it's always a third team that's neutral totally. ground. So Sheffield ends up hosting a lot of these FA Cup matches. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you're aware of the reputation that British football fans are crazy as fuck. But not as crazy as Brazil. Brazil kills each other's fans. I was saying, we had a buddy, shout out to Crash, Crash. Who, who lived in South America for like three years, four years, and the stories he tells, I was like, oh yeah, the English football hooligans <laughs> are nuts, and they, they'll riot, and they'll fight, and it's mm -hmm. crazy. And he was like, yeah, they just straight up stab each other down there. And I was yeah. like, oh. Just kidding. Not Brazil crazy, but there is usually a yeah, lot of- special breed of crazy. Your hometown team is your hometown team, and it's very intrinsically important to the core of these people. In the 1980s, it was worse. Like, now it's not nearly as bad. Things have kind of calmed down. We've learned a lot of lessons. It's still way more nutso than over here. So much so that the fans get appointed specific entrances to enter by. So- So they don't interact? They don't interact. They have, <laughs> they're, they're cordoned into separate parts of the stadium, so we'll go, uh, your fans get this stand and this stand, and your fans get that stand and that stand. Your fans all have to enter by this gate, and if they catch the wrong team trying to enter by the other gate, they tell them to go around. Wow. They completely separate it. It's regulated. You okay. have to enter from separate places. There's also heavy police involvement. Mm -hmm. So over here, there's usually cops at a stadium because it's a big public event. We need yeah. safety and stuff. But they're just sort of stationed there. Over there, cops are an intrinsic part of planning every game. The police dictate to the stadium how the game will be planned because there's so much potential for, you know, shit to get out of hand. That's nuts. Yeah, yeah. and this is very much true in most of the world because, yeah. you know, Football's huge everywhere but here. We play helmet ball. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, our helmet ball fans go kind of nuts. Like, after championship, they tend to 
flip cars and stuff. Ew, that's so a bit the, of a difference. There's always a massive police presence and they're heavily, heavily involved in crowd control and keeping everyone safe. Okay. So they're very much involved in playing these games. A lot of the time the fans are kind of herded like animals. Like it's like riot footage. Okay. But this is pre-game yeah. to get into the stadium. And you're kind of consenting when you go there. You just understand this You just is how understand gonna... that shit might get crazy yeah. and that the cops sort of treat you as an invading army and mm-hmm. they'll have riot gear and they'll herd you into the stadium. Interesting. Yeah, again, not so much now, but it's different culture, especially back in the day. Yeah, because it's your warriors for your town are fighting the warriors for that town. It's Mm -hmm. very, very primal. This is why we got to go old school Olympics. Mm -hmm. Right. Actual murder. Lions. Right. And so that environment is a big contributing factor to this. Another major contributing factor is that all the football stadiums at the time were old as fuck. Oh, no. Because it's England. Okay. Everything's old. Uh So the Hillsborough Stadium was built in 1899. Is it all made of wood? No, it's concrete. But we're talking about the 1980s, so this is a 100-year-old stadium. Maybe not all the safety stuff is super up to snuff. Don't make me bring out my OSHA hat. Do I need to? You're going to be mad. Okay. Why do you keep making me mad? It's fun. (laughs) So the Hillsborough Stadium, 100 years old, it's two levels. It's two-tiered. So the upper level, the big ring around the top, Mm -hmm. is all seated, right? There's some seating on the bottom level, too, but most of it is standing room only. Oh, no shit. Is it slanted so you can actually see? Or? Yeah, it's concrete. And there's so it's like these, a coliseum. There's these shallow concrete steps. I was going to say it's a very much like okay. the, the Roman coliseums. Yeah, okay. There's sort of these shallow concrete steps. I'm vibing. But everyone's just standing there. There's no fucking seats. And everyone yeah. kind of mills around. It's very open because all the guys who want to be close to the action are down there mm-hmm. on the concrete steps. This sounds like a monster. All the grandmas go up and sit in the seats and watch the game from above. And then there's usually sort of a shit show down there. Yeah. But of course, they have a big fucking raised fence around the front to keep people from running onto the field. Someone's going to get naked and run across the field. Right. Well, they have to put a big old yeah. fence up. There's gates in the fence in case somebody has to come from the audience. Yeah, yeah there's gates, but they're locked. It's a dumb setup from any kind of safety perspective. You already seem like you're getting agitated. I am. But this is how it was for hundreds of years. These are all old stadiums. Mm-hmm. Why would you change? The thing is, there had already been an incident before the one I'm talking about there. And it happened at the 1981 FA Cup semifinal. Eight years before this supposedly happened. About eight years. Yeah. yeah. The FA Cup semifinals are the equivalent of like the NFC championships here. Mm-hmm. It's the two towns who are going to go on to the championship. Huge fucking deal. And once again, the Sheffield Wednesdays mm-hmm. are neutral ground for a semifinal between Tottenham and Wolverhampton. Oh, yes. And uh, the way it works, because they separate the fans, is Wolverhampton had been giving the east end of the field, the east entrance, mm-hmm. and that half of the stadium. And the east entrance was the bigger one. There were 60 turnstiles. Because to get in, you have to go through a turnstile, present your ticket, much like today. Mm-hmm. Big, fancy entrance. There's 60 fucking turnstiles. The Tottenham fans were told to use the smaller west entrance, which only had 23 turnstiles, also known as the Leppings Lane end of the field. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of an infamous word now. Not like a leper. Not like a lemur. Not like a leper. Not like a... Lemming? Lemming. <laughs> Leppings. Leppings. So the fans showed up late through no fault of their own, I believe. Are they there all was... on like some bus and they all show up at the same time? They all have... the fans ran but late they have, simultaneously. They, they have to come from their town to this town. Okay. And so okay. usually they're all kind of on the same train, same yeah. bus route. There's sort of a swell and most people show up at one time. Mm-hmm. So in this case, they showed up late and because there's only 23 turnstiles open, there's a big backup to get in. Ooh. Big old crowd outside starts pressing forward trying to get in and it's taking so long to get everyone in. The, the game starts and they can hear the oh, game no. they can hear the whistles from the they field and they're all fucking excited and they all start pressing forward and trying to get through these 23 turnstiles which is not near enough for how many people there were thousands of people trying to get in they start getting crushed up and of course the police are there to make sure that nothing bad happens and they go fuck this is getting kind of dangerous for people up front are getting kind of crushed mm-hmm. so they open a gate 
to just let people walk in freely. Mm -hmm. Because the only reason to go through the turnstiles is to prove that you bought a ticket. Yeah. At this point, people could get hurt. People could die. Who cares? They open a gate. Everyone rushes in. Yeah. Here's the problem. When you first walk in the gates at the Leppingsland end of the Hillsborough Stadium, directly in front of you, there's a tunnel. And through the tunnel, you can see the grass... And if you rush through that, you end up in that standing room area. Mm -hmm. Now, if you take your time and calm down and look around to the sides, there are stairs going up to the seats and there are tunnels over here going to, you know, different areas out Mm -hmm. there. So you don't have to go right straight ahead and rush in there. But why would you if you see the light at the end of the tunnel? These people have been sitting there stuck, just waiting to get in for like so long at this point. They Mm -hmm. can hear the game going on that they're missing. And when they're finally allowed into the grounds, they see a tunnel, they see players out there. Mm -hmm. They all rush down this tunnel. And of course, they all rush directly into one area area of that standing room Mm -hmm. area in a straight line trying to get to the front and the same thing happens that happened outside everyone starts running to the same point they start bumping up against each other there's too many people there they get Mm -hmm. crowded the people at the front of the gate watching the game start to get start to get smushed and it's fucking dangerous people can get hurt people can die we need to relieve this so fortunately they avoided disaster in 1981 because uh, first of all the police that were stationed there saw that this was happening and they started opening the gates uh, at the front mm-hmm. and allowing people to come out and sit on the grass as long as they promise to be calm yeah. and not run onto the field. Yeah. They let fans out to sit around. That's kind of cool. They got to, like front row seats. They said, you can come out, sit down, be quiet, don't interrupt the game. And so those fans who were getting crushed at the front actually got let in and got to sit there on the grass around the edges of the field oh, that's crazy. and watch the game just to make sure they were safe. Yeah. Right. The other thing is the fans were able to move sideways. Yeah. Because this is a whole quarter of the field. So mm-hmm. if they're getting crushed, they can move to the side and kind of get some air. And also there were crush barriers in place. Mm-hmm. So crush barriers in a standing room kind of space, they're just a metal bar that comes up, goes over and goes back down again, kind of like a railing. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that if people get stuck on something, they'll get stuck on the crush barrier. They can't just all rush to the same spot. Mm-hmm. There's objects in the way just to make sure too much weight doesn't get puddled on people in front. Yeah. There's bars every few feet. Because of all that, there were 38 injuries that day. There were a couple broken bones. So people went to the hospital but there were no deaths mostly credit to the cops for opening the gates and because there was enough room they were fine but it did expose a danger and it was concerning to people that this could happen in a you know Mm -hmm. quote-unquote modern hundred-year-old football stadium and so there was a push for the stadium to remodel so this wouldn't happen again this makes me so nervous to hear about what the actual disaster is so as a response the stadium put in pens in 1985 like pig pens so what pens are is imagine this big semicircular standing room only space at one end of the field Mm -hmm. So what they did is they divided it up into six separate sections. So each, you can only fit so many people. Each one with a fence in between each section. And these correspond to the tunnels where one could enter, mm-hmm. right? So if you go down a tunnel, you can get in, but you're fenced into this one section. So to go to the next section, you have to go all the way out and come back in again. Now, the way this was supposed to work is that instead of having one main entrance with turnstiles and just that one sort of ingress point, there would be an ingress point at each sort of entrance to each of these pens, mm-hmm. and they would keep track of how many people went in and make sure it weren't overcrowded was the idea. Yeah, this right? is also assuming a certain level of like intelligence and behavior from the fans. Not even the fans. Oh. Because they're not at fault here. Really? Yeah. The fans are just rowdy, boisterous guys like me. They're just guys. Yeah. Can confirm. <laughs> might, have a few, might have a few drinks, might get in a punch up, but they're just guys. Okay. And gals. And kids, for God's sakes. They're rowdy, but they're not the ones who are supposed to design the fucking stadium. Mm-hmm. They're supposed to show up and have a good time. Yeah. And pay their goddamn ticket. And have the assumption of safety. Exactly. So they do the thing where they put the pens in. So the standing room area, instead of being a big open area, is divided into six separate pens. Mm -hmm. What they didn't do is enforce the part outside where they're supposed to have separate entrances for each pen. They just never did it. It was a cost-cutting measure because it would be really expensive to replace just this row of turnstiles with Mm -hmm. separate entrances and separate paths for each one. Of course. Why would you spend the money? So they put the pens in. 
reportedly to stop violence, but they didn't actually give them all separate entrances. They just cut the space into little cubes. Your OSHA brain's going off, isn't it? My, yep. Um, <laughs> it gets worse. I'll make you matter. You'll make me matter? Yes. Many of the crush barriers were removed because the owners were concerned that people would be able to stand on the crush barriers and then hop the fences. Oh, for fuck's sake. Okay. And so they removed, not all of them, but a okay. lot of the crush barriers meant to prevent human crushes were removed to put the fences in. Good idea. To make sure they were penned in yep. and didn't have crush barriers. Yep. Great idea. Fish. So, April 15th, 1989. Mm-hmm. It's another FA Cup semifinal, mm-hmm. eight years later, this time between Liverpool and Nottingham, mm-hmm. as in Robin Hood, Nottingham. Yes, yes. Which is a real place. I was place. about to make yes, that joke. Yes, no, okay, it's, it's a real you. place. They're actually called Nottingham Forest. Oh. So this FA Cup final, Liverpool and Nottingham, two big teams, big fucking deal, big ass crowds. Mm-hmm. This is for the championship, you know? Okay. Nottingham Forest! <laughs> We're men. We're men and tight, tight, right. tight. And Liverpool, which is just Liverpool Football Club, because they're not fucking fancy. Boring. Well... Don't insult Liverpool. They were my local team. Yeah, okay. So, the Nottingham fans are given the east entrance, the big entrance with the 60 turnstiles. Oh, they fucked Liverpool. This is all going to sound really familiar after 1981. They give them the 60 turnstiles at the big entrance, and they give Liverpool the west entrance, even though more Liverpool fans are going to be there. So they gave them the smaller Flemings, the Lemmings entrance. They gave them the Leper Lane entrance. This seems like bad planning. Like I said, the next few facts are going to sound very familiar. So uh, many fans were late because they didn't have enough trains running. And Mm -hmm. so they had to pack a train, wait for it to go, come back, get on that same train. So a lot of fans were late to the game. Mm -hmm. There was also a lot of road work going on on the major highways to the city. So a lot of fans were stuck in traffic if they drove. Well scheduled. Mm -hmm. That'd be like planning something on I-5 when we have like a Seahawks championship. It was also a sunny day. And so a lot of the people who would normally, if it was a rainy day, they'd go into the stadium because it was covered to get in there and hang out. But it was a sunny day. So they would hang out in the streets, have a few beers before going in. You know, fun fact, there was a girl in my first grade class whose name was Sunny Day, and I was extremely jealous because I thought that was the coolest fucking name ever. Mm. Irrelevant, but fun. <laughs> okay. It was a warm, balmy afternoon. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> Point is, almost everybody was late, and so the vast majority of the Liverpool fans showed up about 20 minutes before kickoff, mm. all at the same time. Yeah, okay. It's 5,000 people, and of course, they're delayed. And they're like, the game's starting soon, the game's starting soon, they start mm-hmm. to push up. It's taking forever to get people in. The teams make their grand entrance where they jog out onto the field. And they don't have, like, even half their fans in there. And all the fans outside hear this. Oh, no. And they're pushing up, and they're pushing up. And there's video of this, and it's insane, because it's, like, 5,000 people all trying to get through this, like, tiny little window of turnstiles. Just a sea of people. And there are British police officers on horseback riding through the crowd trying to get them to stop pushing because people up front yeah. are starting to get suffocated. They're riding their horses through the crowd and they're hitting people and saying, get back, get back. But there's the so horses many... okay? The horses were fine. Okay. But there's so many fucking people pushing forward and the cops who are out there are starting to panic because this is starting to get dangerous. That's terrifying for them too. And they start radioing because in a tower in the field is where the chief superintendent of the Sheffield police, whose job is to oversee these things, like I said, the cops are heavily involved. Mm-hmm. The chief superintendent, during the game, he's up in the control box and his job is to check all the cameras and make sure everything's cool. Mm-hmm. The cops at that gate start to radio up to this guy and there's this cop who's panicking so much that he just gets on the radio and he starts saying, for fuck's sake, oh! Open the gates! Because he's getting crushed and he's seeing people struggling. It's the only way you're going to get Well, so here's the thing. The guy who was in charge in 1981 was called Chief Superintendent Brian Mole. He'd been working in the area for years. He was very experienced, especially with Sheffield football games. Mm-hmm. And he had been there in 1981 and seen that happen. Six months before this game, he had been reassigned. And the guy in there now, Chief Superintendent David Duckenfield, had zero experience with football mm. games. 
he that seems like a giant oversight. He had never dealt with a fucking football game before. Jesus. And he had never done this kind of crowd control at an event this big. In fact, during the briefing for this game, he pronounced Nottingham Forest wrong because he didn't understand football. Not ing, not a ham forest. Uh, yeah, Liverpool and uh, Nottingham Forestshire. Like, him just... not rest for. Right. The point is, this guy had zero experience with this kind of situation. He wasn't there in 1981. Wasn't part of the culture. He was unqualified. And so he ordered him to open the gate around the turnstiles. And these are big metal doors. Okay. To just basically let the fans flow in freely. 5,000 Tickets or no tickets, 5,000 people. Great idea. So, and again, this is going to sound aggravatingly familiar. The fans rush in late for the game, excited to get there and see the game. And when you enter, in front of you, there is one tunnel. And they don't see the side entrances, so they all go straight. Right, because there's stairs over there, and there's side entrances. There's plenty of room for everybody. You've got tunnel vision at this point, though. Literally tunnel vision. I've been at concerts when I was doing the same thing, and I had tunnel vision. I was like, I'm getting the front of this fucking Red Hot Chili Peppers concert, right. and no one is going to fucking distract me, and you just go straight. Everybody's like that. That's what oh, I'm yeah. saying. This isn't the fans being assholes. No, this I get it. This is just human nature. I completely get it. And there's plenty of room. They're not at capacity. They can go around the sides or upstairs, but they don't, because of course they don't. They see the field, and you can see the players out there playing, and every single one of these people goes running right for the tunnel to try mm-hmm. and get to the front. But this tunnel no longer leads to the entire quarter of the stadium of the standing room. This tunnel leads to pen three and pen four, two tiny little fenced in pens where the only way in or out is that tunnel. You can't go out the sides or the front. That's all locked in. The only ways in or out is that one tunnel. So the pens are already at capacity before they opened the gates because all the people coming through the turnstile had the same reaction. The people who actually made it in after waiting, they went, fuck, I want to get to the game. So they all went straight down the front tunnel. So the pens are already jam-packed. And in fact, this is commented on. There's a moment where the sports broadcaster kind of comments off air, but it's on tape. To the cameraman, he's like, hey, look down there. And he pans the camera down because there's these six or seven pens And most of them have plenty of room. You can see the concrete. They're nowhere near capacity except for these two center ones, pen three and four, Mm -hmm. are just jam-packed. Like, it looks like a mosh pit. And that's before the gates were opened. Oh, this is making me nauseous. Okay. So, thousands of people run down this tunnel. And, of course, a crush starts. Because the people already there at the front, they can't get out. The only way out is back down the tunnel and everyone's going down this tunnel. They can see the game and as they're going down the tunnel, they're so excited. And by the time they realize, oh, fuck, this is terrible and try and turn around, they can't get back out. And it just keeps happening. They can't run to the sides. There's fences there. The pressure gets so great that the crush barriers that are left, the ones that weren't removed, break and bend and snap off. So there's no crush barriers anymore. Into the people. These people are being pressed against the crush barriers. So hard that the crush barriers snap. Oh, God. And everybody towards the front of these two pens starts getting crushed and starts asphyxiating. Into the fencing. Into the fencing at the front of the field. Oh, for fuck. There's some pictures. They don't put them in the documentary because they're fucked up. I wouldn't suggest Googling them. They're, I wasn't planning they're on it. They're tragic because there's people pressed up against this fencing and they're purple. I mean, yeah, with thousands of pounds there's, of yeah, human and, and there's, there's two or three levels of people crushed up against the front fence. Holy fuck. What? They started climbing each other? Yeah, they're trying to survive. Oh my god. Because there's still people rushing in, and they're still over capacity, and people can't breathe. And so they're trying to climb the human in front of them just to get out of just it. Just to live, because they can't breathe. They start piling up on top of each other, like it's a pool filling up. This is like a bad zombie movie. It is, but it's just football mm-hmm. fans who can't escape now. There's no way out. They had to have stopped the game by now. Uh, nope. Game's still going on. There's fans literally being asphyxiated. Like, what? An active football the f- game. The first fans, yeah. Is act- going on. And none of the players or anybody or even the fans opposite the stadium notice that this is happening? No, they they notice. They but don't the- start screaming or like trying to like tear down the fencing they or do. anything? They do. 
The problem is the oh person who's in charge of whether the game gets canceled and the person who's in charge of whether or not we help these people is... Fuckingfield? David Duckenfield up in the box. Fuck him. And he's watching this with no idea what to do because he's never done you this. stop it. You fucking stop it. I'm getting so mad. I know. So the first fans who managed to climb over the pile of now bodies and try and jump the fence to get onto the field to survive are ordered by the police to stop and get back in the pen. No! Because they're not allowed to come onto the field. The game will be over. Okay, still jump on the field. What, are they getting to baton you for not dying? (laughs) Some of them get over. Failing that, what a lot of people start doing is climbing up on top of the mass of people. And at that point, they can reach up into the stands above them. And the people above them start pulling people up to save them. Oh my god, what? Yeah. People in the upper seats can see down there. And they start reaching down and helping people climb up to save their lives. I'm going to start crying. Oh my god, what? And the whole time this is going on, there's still more fans rushing in. Okay, I, I, I was not ready for this. How is nobody doing anything about this? This happened very fast. This is all within 20 minutes. Well, I would assume so. Just human inertia. Just, just a lot, yeah. A human crush is like one of my biggest fears. Because I've been at lots of concerts and lots of sports games. I, I've been at metal shows where there's a lot of people and not a lot of crowd control. Like really and there's, and right they're now. over capacity. And like I've been at the front and I've been like, I feel like I'm going to suffocate up here because I can't move or breathe. And I'm a big fucker. Yeah. Yeah, you are. (laughs) Like. Okay. All right. So six minutes into the game, it's canceled because somebody finally blows the whistle. Not David Dickface, but a cop ran out onto the field. Good. And grabbed the ref. Good. And said, stop this game. He deserved a trophy. Uh, So the game is canceled. The players go back to their locker rooms like, holy fuck. Because by this time, the entire stadium can see something bad's happening down there. And this is still just actively going on. Still happening. Oh, my God. They opened the gates to the pens to let fans onto the field. The problem is that by this point, the bodies were piled up high enough that they couldn't get them out. They were bodies at that point. They weren't living Some humans. of them were. Okay. Some of them were alive and just couldn't move. But it's like opening the door and all you can see is this pile of people. It's like snow. And you're trying to pull people out, but yeah. they're stuck because their legs wrapped around this guy's arm and yeah. that guy's head. And It's like when you have like seven feet of snow, you just open yeah. the door and it's just seven feet of at snow. At this point, most of the people who are surviving are walking over the pile and jumping off onto the field over the fence. There's so much video footage of this. It's fucking tragic. Like it's heartbreaking shit. So at this point, the flood has stopped. And they start grabbing people. Mostly the fans at this point themselves are yeah. helping each other out. The guys on the top rows are still pulling people out of the crowd. The people they can get out the front gates are yeah. they're, they're pulling out these gates. But, you know, it's just this mess. And the fans are pulling the advertising billboards down off the sides of the stadium to use them as stretchers. Oh. To carry their fellow fans who are injured and dying oh over to God. safety. There are almost no emergency responders here at this point. They were all there late. For a few reasons. One was they were delayed by the same traffic the, the fans were. Okay, okay. They also were not told by the police which fans were injured, so they showed up at the wrong end of the field. What? Turns out the guy directing all this didn't know how football worked. And so he didn't specify to the emergency responders which end of the field they should show up on. That's amateur. He's a fucking police chief. Mm-hmm. They all showed up. You on... don't know where to locate your first responders? They all showed up on the Nottingham side. And so the Liverpool fans themselves are putting each other on stretchers and running them over to the Nottingham side where the EMTs are. Oh, my God. Once the people who were injured got to the EMTs and they took them away to the hospital and those who were kind of okay were sort of settled out on the field. And there was just hundreds of people out on the field at this point. There was just this pile of bodies left. Oh, God. So uh, in total, 94 people died in the pens. What? 94 people died of asphyxia in the pens. Oh, my God. Two died later in hospital, so it's a total of 96 dead and 766 injuries. What? That's disgusting. Yeah. No, I'm crying. I'm okay. So, 
that was the Hillsborough disaster. You know, obviously the um, bodies were taken out, identified by the families, buried, etc. The stadium was cleaned up. My mind is blown about this. I know. I, no, this, 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 I want to put something right gotcha. So after this event happened, none of the blame for what happened went to the stadium owners or engineers or to the police. What? The blame went entirely to the Liverpool fans. Are you fucking kidding me? Nope. Chief Superintendent David Duckenfuck, the guy who was supposedly in charge of the event, did not admit that he had told the police outside to open the gates. He told the BBC who interviewed him that the fans broke in. And then the BBC, dutifully, because they heard it from the guy in charge, repeated this to the general public. Why would you? Newspapers in England, most prominently and notably The Sun, which is sort of their big Mm -hmm. tabloid kind of paper, but also more reputable like The Times, Mm -hmm. took the story the police gave them, which was that it was the fans' fault. They reported they were unruly. They started a riot. They reported that they spit and urinated on police officers who were trying to save them. They reported that they were all drunk. No kids involved. Definitely no women. Oh, there were women and children. It's just a giant mass of drunk men who are all unruly and they pissed and shit on everybody. Right, exactly. Liverpool football hooligans. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're all hooligans. This riot had no reason to happen, even though it's not a riot. But yeah, There were absolutely women and children on those pens. Oh, no. A lot of the dead are women and children. I believe you. Horribly misreported this, largely due to information they were getting from the police. Well, maybe rich people influencing the way it's reported. Yeah, the, the, the government and the media put the blame on this solely on fans of Liverpool Football Club for how unruly they were being. Who obviously controlled the infrastructure and the way it was planned and the ability to get back and forth and the city's inability to actually plan for a large event. Yeah, in fact, the uh, biggest source for these newspapers saying this stuff were a senior police official in the area and a parliament member, neither of whom were at the game. Oh, of course. Margaret Thatcher, the prime minister, Mm -hmm. her press secretary publicly said, oh, this was caused by a tanked-up mob of Liverpool supporters. The coroner, who was in charge of looking at all of the dead from this incident and determining cause of death, blood alcohol tested the corpses, and he looked up their criminal records, all in an effort to discredit them. What? Which is not a thing a coroner is supposed to do. No, and it's none of their fucking business. Because he was playing into this police and government theory. I'm assuming he was ordered to do so. Presumably, or at least pressured to by his peers. Because what he wanted to come back with is saying they were all drunk and they're all criminals. He ended up marking all 95 at the time as accidental death, as if they were drunk and fell off a ladder. The thing with accidental death is you can't call it manslaughter. It's an accident. And you don't have to investigate it further. Nope. So there is some positivity in here. Mm -hmm. There's not Mm -hmm. a lot, but there's little sparks. In 1990, Lord Justice Taylor... So picture a British Lord Judge big wig. I want a big wig and I want some justice. Well, he is responsible for the Taylor Report, which is his independent investigation of the event and what caused it. The media had already chalked this up to drunk Liverpool fans killing themselves. Fuck the media. We know they're influenced. Well, so had the police force and the local government were like, oh, fucking fans. Lord Justice Taylor goes and makes the Taylor Report. And his conclusion is that... The event was entirely the fault of police's lack of crowd control. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he says it's not the fault of the fans, it's the fault of the police. 
problem with that, though, is that his report was based on what was given to him by the police's evidence. The Taylor report did not have enough evidence in it to actually prosecute any particular person, any police officer. They said the cops fucked up, but it didn't place blame. Okay. So there was a group called the Hillsborough Family Support Group made up of relatives of the people who died that day. And they founded this group to try and get some justice because, you know... They they fucking deserve some. And everything in the media, newspapers, TV is telling you your dead son caused this and they knew that wasn't true Mm -hmm. the taylor report said it was the police's fault so in 2010 years later the hillsborough family support group finally has enough people and money and such to attempt to prosecute david duckenfield and another officer who was there on the day commanding stuff called bernard murray because they had clearly fucked up and lied about it they failed i believe bernard murray was acquitted and david duckenfield had a hung jury they failed to get any convictions but One of the big things that came out of that 2000 court case was that David Duckenfield in court had to admit that he lied at the time. He had to admit that these statements were false and he knew they were false. And at least at that point, legally, the public knew at that point that it was Duckenfield and the Yorkshire police's fault, not the fault of Liverpool fans. So that was a big win. Even if they didn't get conviction, it was a win in the public eye. That's not quite justice, right? So, in 2009, the uh, UK government founds the Hillsborough Independent Panel to reinvestigate the case. Okay. They investigate it for three years. They dig out all the old documents, footage, testimonies. So, immediately after the event, every single police officer who was there, they have to write a report, right? I would assume so. So, all these reports of what they saw, what actually happened. Well, they're not David fucking Field. Like, they're no, actually no, trying no, no. to do they, their they job. Were, they were the ones trying to pull the bodies out of the pile. Yeah. These are um, good people doing their civil duty. Every single one of them had to write a police report because they're fucking police. And they turned the reports in, and every single one of the reports was sanitized. Are you fuck? They had to turn it into their superiors first. And they would then edit the text of those reports before those reports were passed on. Of course. To guys like Lord Justice Taylor. Mm-hmm. Going back and looking at those old reports, it was very clear that the way they were edited was in a way to absolve any wrongdoing on the fault of the police administrators mm-hmm. and to focus on any sort of fan unruliness. Yeah. And uh, we're talking about. 164 separate statements from both police officers and witnesses Hmm. had been sanitized in this manner before being filed officially. So the Hillsborough Independent Panel in 2009 uncovers this. Three years later, after all this investigation in 2012, it publishes its report, and it also simultaneously launches a publicly available website containing 450,000 pages of material that had never been seen before, including the original witness statements. This is all public now. Anybody can go look at it. Yeah. And they also published a full-on report and their findings, which were more conclusive than the Taylor report in 1990, well, were... they had more information to work with. ...were that unequivocally Liverpool fans in general were not responsible in any way for any part of this disaster. That must have been so satisfying for the families. Absolutely. They also commissioned a new coroner's report. Good. In 2012. Because they looked back at the original coroner's report and they realized this guy was just sucking dick for mm-hmm. a job, right? Like, this yep. guy was completely lying. Commission new coroner's report, and so, for all of the victims that day, the verdict on cause of death was changed from accidents to unlawful killing. Mm. And that it was caused by errors or omission by police commanding officers, the Sheffield Wednesday Football Club, the ambulance service, and the people who designed and certified the stadium. That was in April 2016, by the way. That was years later. <laughs> Oh my god, okay. After that report came out, and all the unredacted witness statements came out, and the actual truth came out in full to the public, the Prime Minister of the UK at the time, David Cameron, 
apologized to all of the family members on behalf of the entire British government, even though he was not even kind of in charge no, at the time. As the leader of the shop. As did the people currently running Sheffield Wednesday Football Club. Mm-hmm. As did the entire current South Yorkshire Police Department. And the editor of The Sun at the time, Kelvin McKenzie, Good. who first published that shitty article. Good. Norman Bettison, who at the time was the chief constable of the West Yorkshire Police, resigned immediately after the report came out. Because he was the one who had told the press that the fans were drunk and violent. They immediately had to leave mm-hmm. his position. After the second coroner's report on lawful killing verdict came out, Prime Minister David Cameron said, quote, It represents a long overdue but landmark moment for the quest for justice. All families and survivors now have official confirmation of what they always knew was the case. The Liverpool fans were utterly blameless in the disaster that unfolded at Hillsborough. Following on that, in 2017... There were new trials against six people involved. David Dickenfuck mm-hmm. was the primary, you know, he's the fucking guy, and faced 95 counts of manslaughter by gross negligence. Whoa. And this is 2017, so this is... Three years ago? 28 years later. Also up on charges were the chief inspector, solicitor, chief superintendent, and detective chief superintendent of the police at the time, as well as the club secretary of the Sheffield Wednesday Football Club at the time, Graham Mackerel, who was personally in charge of stadium safety. As a fellow club secretary who has been in charge of safety things, you (laughs) fucked up. Yeah. So far, the only guilty verdict out of all of these charges was club secretary Graham Mackerel who got found guilty for uh, health and safety violations in managing the stadium, and he was fined 5,000 pounds. What? For 96 people dead? Which is pretty much equivalent for American dollars, so five grand. Maybe six American, but it's not much more. How much is that, like $5 a person? 5,000 pounds divided by 96 human lives is 52 pounds per person. Okay, so... Not satisfying. (laughs) No, no. Um, But I say so far... Because he was found guilty of that in May 2019, so a little over a year ago. On November 28th, 2019, so just a few months ago, David Duckenfuck was found not guilty of all counts of gross negligence manslaughter. Because the argument was, he didn't know. Gross negligence implies that you know, and he had no experience. So his boss should be fired? Well, good luck getting it up that high. But... (sighs) Okay. If I can put a little tiny silver lining on this. That'd be great. The general public finally, legally, without question, knows exactly who's to blame. In 2020, nobody in the country of England will say that Hillsborough was the fault of Liverpool fans. David Dickenfuck is hated among the British public. I would assume so. They all know who he is. They all know what he did. Now, again, like I said, silver lining. This event had a massive and profound effect on stadium safety. I would hope so. In the years immediately following this, almost every football stadium in England was immediately remodeled. Good. The vast majority of them now are fully seated. They don't do standing room anymore. Mm-hmm. So you get a ticket with a seat number on it, even if you are in the crappy seats. Most of the fences and barriers that would keep people from having multiple points of exit Uh, have been removed. So in all stadiums now, there's not going to be one place where you can enter or exit. There's always multiple routes out. 
Mm-hmm. The places that aren't fully seated, where there are standing room pens and areas, have strict crowd control at the entrance so that people can't just rush in and you can't get overcrowded. They count how many people are in there and cut it off when there's too many. Mm-hmm. There have been erected over a dozen memorial statues, plaques, public parks, gardens, uh, in memory of the 96 who died that day, all over England, particularly in Liverpool and in Sheffield, mm-hmm. so that people don't forget that it ever happened. Uh, two flames have been permanently added to the logo of Liverpool Football Club to commemorate the 96 who died that day. Mm-hmm. Today, watch a Liverpool match. There's two flames on their logo. Oh. In 1996, Hillsborough and the events surrounding it and how it went down were turned into a movie, and it won the BAFTAs, the British Association of Film and Television Awards. It won for Best Drama, Best Editing, and Best Sound, and it starred future Doctor Who Christopher Eccleston. Oh, okay. And in 2014, the story of all these events, after the truth really came out, um, were documented in the 30 for 30 documentary Hillsborough, which is one of the best documentaries I've ever seen in my life. And that's the Hillsborough disaster. Fuck. When you said you were going to get dark, I did not... My heart is very heavy right now. You weren't picturing piles of bodies, were you? (laughs) (laughs) To put it lightly, no, I was not picturing piles of bodies. Wow. That is just utterly heartbreaking and idiotic. Yeah. It's heartbreaking idiocy would be the tagline. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sorry I made you very sad. (laughs) No, that was a very interesting, terrifyingly heartbreaking story. Um, Thank you for letting me know. I I don't think I probably would have come across that in a long time. I'm never going in a stadium again. Uh, First of all, (laughs) I hate humanity. I already have decided that in the last like seven or eight months that I'm just never leaving our mountain. I am going to stay up on Poo Poo Point for fucking ever. That solidified it. Let's do, do you want to go to a Mariners game? Not happening. No, no, let's go. Let's do minor league stuff. Big fan of the Tacoma Rainiers. I do love the Tacoma Rainiers. Shout out to the Tacoma Rainiers. There's not enough people there to crush you. You'd think that. Uh, I am small. What about uh, Seattle Thunderbirds? Nobody gives a fuck about Our them. rugby team could crush me. Yeah, a surprisingly large brick could crush you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> In memoriam, I would like to do a quick drink to kind of close that story out because I am an open wound right now. This <laughs> is... Terrifyingly sad. So I am sorry that that happened to you, and I am hoping that the families have some sort of closure to the Liverpool fans. To the 96. Okay. I need to do that. I need to get into my topic, which is not as heart-crushingly depressing as yours. (laughs) All right. right. Well, it's my turn. You've been making me sad for weeks. I know. (laughs) Okay. This week, my topic is Long John Baldry. (laughs) Long John Baldry. He is credited with being one of the original... People who brought blues to Britain. Oh, okay. Birth of the British blues. John William Baldry, English-Canadian blues singer and voice actor. He's born January 12th, 1941 in Northamptonshire. His early life was spent in Edgware, Middlesex, where he attended Camrose Primary School until age 11. Hmm. Before that, around age of eight, he was already singing in church. He wound up going over to a neighbor's house and listening to a collection of jazz and blues, and he loved the voice and the 12-string guitar playing of Hewdy Ledbetter, also known as Leadbelly. Oh, I know Leadbelly. Leadbelly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. So this cute little 11-year-old white English kid falling in love with, like, American black blues You and can't R&D. help what you like, man. You can't. Um, <laughs> so he actually started the Blues Appreciation Society at his school at age 12. That's adorable. He acquired his first guitar at age 14, taught himself to play in the Leadbelly style, the reason they call him Long John, by the time he'd finished puberty, he was six foot seven inches tall. Damn. This is a tall bastard. Yeah, Long John. So he's Long John Baldry. 
I'm surprised you don't remember this because my dad sent him a song. <laughs> Your dad sends us a lot of old jams, man. I can't keep track of all he of does. them. He um, does. But I would like to credit Mr. Ron Wayne, my dad, for introducing pretty much every good musician and band I know in my entire life, but especially Long John Baldry. Your pop's got taste. My pops is badass. <laughs> Long John started playing the blues in the early 1960s. He appeared regularly in the Gyre and Gimble Coffee Lounge at Eel Pie Island on the Thames at Twickenham. This seems like the least blues place I can think of. You'd think that, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, he also performed at the Station Hotel in Richmond, which was one of the Rolling Stones' earliest venues that they performed at as well. And they actually oh. wound up knowing each other. Early British rock and roll. Yeah. So interestingly enough, the reason I had such a hard time researching him is Long John Baldry is an influence to many and was a friend to many extremely famous musicians. He played with Muddy Waters, but was not well known himself. So he's kind of like... Never got the credit. Exactly. Never got the credit. He influenced many other different rock musicians, but like he's very difficult to research because he was kind of a private guy and he was kind of like not well known, but he was such like an influence upon the entire culture. He's basically credited with the birth of British blues. The six foot seven dandy blonde British guy always wore a tie. He sang with Alexis Corner and Cyril Davies Blues Incorporated, which Ooh. is the first official band that he was a part of. And he was part of recording the first British blues album with them in 1962 called R&B at the Marquee. 62? 1962. Dang. The Rolling Stones also made their debut at the Marquee Club in July of 1962. Baldry actually was such a fan after hearing them one time that he put together a group to support and go to their first showing. Like a fan? At the Marquee. Yeah, yeah. Basically, he's fucking like, awesome. He's such a sweetheart. He supports everybody and he found this band that he liked and he heard the Rolling Stones and he's like, this is good. I get it. He got such a large group put together and he actually wound up meeting and talking to the Rolling Stones after. Later, Baldry was actually their announcer on their only U.S. live album called Got Life, If You Want It. So he was the announcer I, for the whole thing. No, I know that album. So you probably I know, know that voice. You know John Baldry's That's voice. That's Baldry. Yep. There are actually a few reasons you're going to know his voice. Oh, okay. As I said, singer and voice, voice actor. actor. right. So he actually became friends with Paul McCartney as well mm. after a Cavern Club show in Liverpool. Um, I sort of assumed he'd get his dick in the Beatles. He's got his dick in everything. <laughs> which is more ironic Long than I should have said. Long John. <laughs> So he became friends with Paul McCartney. They actually invited him to sing on the Beatles' 1964 TV special, Around the Beatles. He actually performed Got My Mojo Working, oh. which we'll have to look up on YouTube later because wow. it was very cool. So he's got his fingers in all the different pies. He's just very <laughs> supportive. <Yeah. laughs> he's a good blues singer who is supporting his fellow musicians. Yeah. You know, in the 1960s. That's what it's all about. Exactly. And he's just all over the scene. In 1963, he joined the Cyril Davies R&B All-Stars. He had to take over 1964 after the death of Cyril Davies, mm. and they actually became Long John Baldry and his Hoochie Coochie Men. That sounds like a band I would see every week. Agreed. Uh, <laughs> and Long John Baldry and his Hoochie Coochie Men actually featured a 19-year-old Rod Stewart on vocals. Wait, Rod Stewart? 19-year-old Rod Stewart on vocals. Nice. Um, Long John Baldry actually <laughs> recruited Rod Stewart when he heard him busking muddy waters at Twickenham Station. Took it him. Took it him. Took it him. Took it him. I'm saying it as an American. Took him. I'm trying. Took him. Took him. Took him. Took him. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> um, a quote from Rod, specifically about how he was recruited. Long John Baldry launched me on my musical career. I was 18 and playing harmonica and singing a Muddy Water song, Dimples, in a railway station. <laughs> Why'd you say Dimples? That's the song? The song was Dimples. Oh, I thought you just like said Dimples. No, it's like... <laughs> an asterisk. This is a direct quote from him. You have a couple. You're cute. I get it. <laughs> no, <laughs> thanks, babe. Um, he was singing. The Muddy Water song called Dimples on a railway station. That's awesome. When Long John Baldry ran over to me from the other side of the tracks. I had just been to see him play at the club. He was one of the top bluesmen in England. But John didn't sing Muddy Water songs. He knew Muddy Waters. Mm. Had performed with him and Ramblin' Jack Elliott too. And now he was asking, would you like to join my band? 
Oh, goosebumps. All right. So you're imagining you're a 19-year-old singer busking at a train station. Yeah. And all of a sudden, the most famous bluesman in England comes up to you and he's like, hey, would you want to be in my band? Diamonds. Oh, yeah. Just instant. Of course he said yes. So... Why are we both telling British stories? We did not... I don't... No, we don't... We don't plan this. No, we don't plan any of this. I was actually going to do another serial killer and I was like, well, I should probably do something happy for once so people don't think I'm a depressed fuck. Anyways, so 1965, (laughs) Long John Baldry and his hoochie coochie men became Steam Packet. Ooh, Steam Packet. Which sounds kind of dirty to me, but I'm not going to go there. Oh, they did that on purpose because it's not dirty, but it sounds dirty. It sounds kind of... Yeah, it sounds... Mm. Steam Packet if you're nasty. Featuring <laughs> Baldry and Stewart as the male vocalist. Rod Stewart. Rod Stewart. No shit. At 19. And okay. They broke up in 1966, so about a year later. Baldry then formed Bluesology. Fun. Baldry's got good names, man. <laughs> he does. I know. <laughs> so, Bluesology featured Reg Dwight on keyboards. Does Reg Dwight sound familiar? I mean, it sounds familiar because it's a cool name, but I don't... It'll sound familiar in a couple seconds. Oh. Elton Dean, later of Soft Machine. And Caleb Quay on guitar. For somebody who may be more musically inclined, maybe Reg Dwight does sound familiar because when he began his solo career, he adopted the name Elton John. Fuck off. Combined from two of his former bandmates, Long John Baldry and Elton Dean. Wait, the John and Elton John is Long John Baldry? Mm-hmm. Wow. So Elton John also got his career started by Long John Baldry. Wow. Okay. The Stones also had inspiration from him and invited him. Elton John named himself after him. Eric Clapton also was inspired by him because he was like, I never thought that a white guy could sing blues in an authentic way. And I heard Lon John Baldry and I was inspired to do the same. Damn. Okay. So this guy's inspired many, many famous musicians. Yeah. I feel Um, like I wave my musician dick around like I know shit. I don't know this guy. One of the most fantastic voices I've ever heard. And he's so underappreciated. So after... Elton left, Bluesology departed, and Long John Baldry was left without a backup band. He actually went to a couple of shows in the area, as he always did, found a harmony group called Chimera, and after watching one of their shows, he asked if they'd back him. Harmony being vocal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 1967, he recorded a pop song, Let the Heartaches Begin, which kind of was a deviation from what he was known for, but he was like, hey, why not? It went number one in Britain, followed by the 1968 top 20 called Mexico, which was actually the theme of Wait, the UK Olympics that year. I know that fucking song. Let the Heartaches Begin? So- yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of his like blues fans kind of abandoned him after that because they're like, you went pop. That's one I remember. Which is a lot of Rod Stewart fans went and abandoned him when he went pop. I remember when I was a kid. Yeah. Maybe not exemplary of his style. Yeah, but he did it. Important to note, though, kind of before we go forward, something you may not have suspected because he is huge in the blue scene, huge in the rock scene. Long John Baldry was actually openly gay in the 1960s. At the time. Amongst his friends and peers. So not publicly. Well, he didn't write, like, Long John Baldry's big gay band on the album cover. No, but but... everyone he worked with in the industry, including Rod Stewart, Elton John, Paul McCartney, the Rolling Stones. before Elton was out. Yes, which is huge, and he couldn't be public about it until the 1970s, because, fun fact, until 1967 in Britain, male homosexuality was a criminal offense. Oh, yeah. Just male homosexuality. Yeah, pretty much the same here till the 80s. Yeah, it required forced medication or jail time. So he literally could not be out and proud. (laughs) Very brave to even be out to his peers because technically illegal. But in 1967, there was the Sexual Offenses Act, which was an act of parliament in the UK. It legalized consensual homosexual acts in private. Weirdly enough, originally it only applied to England and Wales. It was extended to Scotland in 1980 and North Ireland in 1982. Mm -hmm. So male homosexuality was gay. (laughs) Really? Stop the presses. What? (laughs) Male homosexuality. (laughs) Was super gay. Was very gay. But also, it was illegal in North Ireland until 1982, which was barely before we were born. But if you think that's fucked and everybody who's about to, like, shit on the UK and everything, sodomy 
including male homosexuality, was illegal in 14 states in the United States until 2003. So don't get on your high horse just because you're American and think that we're better than them because they did this way before us. Yeah. Bestiality was legal in more states than male sodomy was mm-hmm. until 2003. It'd be more illegal for you to fuck, fuck your horse fuck your horse, than to fuck another man. Who you were in love with for 15 years. In a lot of states. Yeah. Until so, very recently. So I don't want people to get on their houses and be like, oh, Britain's so fucked up, blah, blah, blah. No, the U.S. is much more fucked up. Why do you think most of the famous homosexuals in American pop culture are British? They had more time to be legal. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I have many, many different articles that I will cite later, but a lot of this is also from a uh, Long John Baldry biography by Paul Myers called It Ain't Easy, The Long John Baldry and Birth of the British Blues. Also, the next story I'm about to tell is from Elton, the biography by David Buckley. Mm. So back to 1968. Reg Dwight, now as we know him, Elton John, he left Bluesology, was still great friends with Long John Baldry. Elton John had met a woman named Linda Woodrow in 1967 on Christmas Eve. Very romantic, very cute. Oh. They were engaged to be married in 1969. Fuck, I knew you'd do this too. <laughs> as soon as he started saying 60 states, I knew you'd fucking get me. I'm just mad because my story started in like 81 and I was like, there's no fucking way. Anyways, so Elton John, engaged to be married. The wedding's approaching. He is secretly gay. He's been gay this entire time, but he's mm. not out to anybody. Sure. And he could not think of a way out of the situation. I thought he married Linda. No. I think you're thinking of... Freddie Mercury. You are. Yeah, you're Who right. did actually legitimately get married. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I confused my gay 70s British rock stars. Two famous gay icons. Well, there's there's about 12 of them, so... Also that. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, Elton cannot think of a way out. Mm. And he's kind of freaking out. He is depressed. I can't relate, but I can understand. Yeah, he's, he's about to commit his life to somebody that he's not even attracted to. Not even the right gender. And he's about to ruin his life. Mm. So he is depressed, and he tries to commit suicide. Shit. At this time, he was living with his roommate, Bernie Toppin, who was his lyricist. So Linda Woodrow, Bernie Toppin, and Elton John were living together. Bernie Toppin found Elton John as he tried to commit suicide. And I'm going to try not to laugh about this, but, like, looking back on it, both Bernie and Elton have laughed about this. So Now that, now that we know they're okay. Yeah, now that we know that they're safe and they're okay. <laughs> Elton John had stuck his head in the oven. And turned the gas on. Bernie couldn't stop laughing because he'd set the gas on low with all the windows open and he was resting his head on a pillow in the open oven. (laughs) (laughs) In Elton the biography, it literally says Bernie could not stop laughing because he was just... (laughs) You obviously aren't trying that hard. They all laugh about it now because it's like, really, honey? So he hit kind of low, obviously, and he relied on his friends to kind of recuperate. And during a pub night, Long John Baldry, a very close friend of his, convinced Elton to abandon the plan to marry and instead to focus on his career. He said something along the lines of, men like us, we don't marry. Mm. Relating as a gay man to a gay man. So Elton John kind of credited Long John Baldry for saving his life. Yeah. He was the one who convinced him not to get married and not to go down that path. And, and instead there's focus no on reason his... to kill yourself just because you like dudes. Right, exactly. And he's like, hey, I'm in the same place as you. May I implore that you focus on your music career and Sh- not yeah. just throw your life away. That's why he's the John and Elton John, huh? Yeah. So John and Bernie the Lyricist and Elton all kind of knew each other. And yeah. Bernie the Lyricist knew about this. And so he wrote the song, Someone Saved My Life Tonight for Elton John. And in the lyrics... The someone is called Sugar Bear, which refers to Long John Baldry. You're going to make me cry now. I know. Stop it. Yeah, so Elton John. I don't John, cry. Grr. So, but I thought that was kind of. I don't know this guy. I don't know, but he saved Elton John's life, which is really cool. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, we're at 1971 now. Word. Rod Stewart and Elton John both help Long John Baldry produce his album, It Ain't Easy. And they each produce one side. So Rod Stewart produces one side, Elton John produces the other, which I thought was very That's sweet. That's fucking awesome. All right, super cute. It made the top 100 in the US charts. Oh, it's on there. Yeah. And this is actually. 
kind of where dad came in. Three or four weeks ago, he sent over a hit off that album called Don't Try to Lay No Boogie Woogie on the King of Rock and Roll. Yup. <laughs> and you and I listened to it, and that's where I got the idea for this. I believe that was a breakfast jam. It was a breakfast jam. We tend to throw on some jams while cooking brekkie in the morning. Mm-hmm. That was a fucking dank breakfast jam. Yeah, it was awesome. Great album. 1975, Laundra Baldry has some mental health problems. He's institutionalized for a brief stint. I believe there was some Valium and alcohol-related issues and some depression. Yeah, he's a musician. Well, also a queer musician. Wait, yeah. That's a lot. Yeah, that institutionalization does inform some of his songs later. So, 1976, he moves into our area of the woods. Like Seattle? Yep. Oh, in the so 70s? He, he became acquainted with the Pacific Northwest. 1976, he teamed up with the Seattle singer Kathy McDonald. Oh, I know her. Um, yeah, she actually became a part of the Long John Baldry Band. That's fucking awesome. In 1977, him and Kathy recorded a version of the Righteous Brothers, You've Lost That Love and Feeling. Mm. You lost that love and feeling. I didn't need to sing that for you. About you know. the love and feeling. Yeah, there we go. We lost that love and feeling. It was gone, gone, gone. Yeah, we're nothing on Kathy and John. Let's, I think that's sellable. Let's not start <laughs> oh, it. Oh, remix that. Make it sound better in post. <laughs> Anyways. It did extremely well, and she actually adored John so much that she joined his touring band for the next two decades. Uh-huh. Yeah, so yeah. he was touring in the Pacific Northwest until the 1990s. I know, I know her as a figure, but still, like, why is this guy not I know. more prominent? From what I can tell from everything I read and the documentaries I watched, which are quite a few, I'll have to list them, just a really humble, quiet guy. Yeah. He just loved the music, and he loved the scene, and he loved the people he was around. Like, he inspired a lot of loyalty. It wasn't going to be, like, bombastic, put him on TV. Like, he doesn't have, like, a crazy pop culture personality. He's not an Elton John. He's not a Rod Stewart. He's not a all these other crazy people that we see usually. He's just a really quiet guy who loves the people who are around him. Yeah. And he loves his society. He loves his community. And that's it. I've kind of fallen in love with this guy, and I'm so sad that I can't see him. He's so long. <laughs> He's so long. And so John. Anyways, so Kathy McDonald joined his uh, touring band for the next two decades. If anything happens from here on out, she's there with she's him. She's there, yeah. From Seattle. Yo. Fun fact, he also had a brief relationship with the lead guitarist of the Kinks. Oh. Dave Davies. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. They dated temporarily. Um, 1978, he moved to New York. Mm. And he met his lifelong partner, Felix Oz. I think it's Rezich. It's R-E-X-A-C-H. No fucking clue. It's pronounced It's a Klingon um, last name traditionally. And <laughs> I also found a couple of different statements about how he met him, but nobody cited other sources. Oh, they found him in Studio 54. There were no historians following two gay men around New York. Right, exactly. Yeah. But they said that, you know, he kind of like got into the gay New York scene and finally let loose. Well, shit, and, yeah, you should. That's a great place for it. And Oz was kind of in the area and they met. They were all around. They met each other. But Good it sounds super cute. He yeah. met his, he's met his lifelong love in New York. Oh, yeah. In 1978, they moved to Toronto and mm. Long John started recording his next album, late 1978. So the same year, they moved and they settled in Vancouver, British Columbia. And Long John Baldry became a Canadian citizen. BC, that's not too far away. Yep, it's our next door neighbor. What up with that left coast? Right. I'll take it. That's also, I was like, oh, this is so close to home because this is your home, my home, England, Washington. Anyways, the album that Long John Baldry was recording in Toronto with Felix after they met and they moved there came out in 1979 and the album was called Baldry's Out. Oh, <laughs> yeah, there we go. There Long we go. Long John. Which announces formal coming out, and it included the song A Thrill's a Thrill. Hell. So, what's uh, that about? Lyrics from A Thrill's a Thrill. Okay. <laughs> I knew you had. Well, I was like, you're not going to end there. <clears throat> the gays are straight, and the straights are queer, and the bias just call everybody dear. Oh, I will try anything if it makes my head go round. Leather whips and fingertips. I know a boy who's growing tits. 
You know what throws a thrill, even in paradise. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that's pretty straightforward. I'm like, I'm not straight. I'm pretty sure that should be your anthem. (laughs) (laughs) He had one line to encapsulate a Sarah and he nailed that. (laughs) Anyways, formally came out. No big repercussions because honestly, most people in the industry knew. And at that point, who gives a fuck? Well, this is the music industry in the 70s. 1979. Yeah. Yeah. Most American British musicians are all kind of like androgynous. And Mm -hmm. we get like David Bowie and Rod Stewart and Elton John. Right. He's living in Canada. He continues to record. Highlights his two 1990s albums. It's Still Ain't Easy. Amazing album. A Right to Sing the Blues. Also an amazing album. He also did a lot of voiceover work. Did you ever watch The Adventures of Sonic the Hedgehog? Yeah, a lot. So Long John Baldry is the voice of Dr. Robotnik, the crazy robot. Like well, I, I know the doctor- who Dr. Robotnik is. So you're saying the Sonic cartoon from the 90s, mm-hmm. he's the voice of Dr. Robotnik. Yes. Fuck off. <laughs> I'm serious. That's awesome. Isn't that cool? So a lot of fans of his actually only found out about him later because they were trying to Google him because they're like, oh yeah, who's that guy who played Dr. Robotnik? And they found out that he's like a famous blues singer. He's the reason. Who started John British Elton Blues. John. He's yeah, the exactly. Rolling Stones had their first fan and base. And like, what? Dr. Robotnik is a famous blues singer? Yeah, it blows their mind. Super well, cool. Well, this is like people who find out that friggin' the Joker in Batman is Mark Hamill. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. He also is the voiceover for the documentary about the original story of Winnie the Pooh. It's available on Spotify under Long John Baldry. Wow. He talks about... The how- real Christopher Robin. Yes, exactly. Real- yeah, but in Long John Baldry's voice, and it's... Very calming. He does a lot of other voiceover work, including a RoboCop cartoon. cartoon. Oh, like the kids' cartoon. They made. Yeah, amazing voice actor. He just has a beautiful voice. Maybe. It's very calming. It's very astute. It's very eloquent. He's made a career of entertaining with his voice. So. Exactly. His final UK tour was in mm. 2004. Unfortunately, Long John Baldry passed away on July 21st in 2005 in Vancouver, BC, after a four-month battle with a severe chest infection. He survived his partner, Felix Oz. His brother, Roger, and his sister, Margaret. And he is remembered fondly and was seen on his deathbed by all of his friends and Rod Stewart. And he is a great influence in British blues and rock and roll. So that is the story of Long John Baldry. I had no idea. I hope it was somewhat happier than your story. Very much so. So I feel like I did the saddest unknown British story that I could, and you did the happiest unknown British story. <laughs> I had to drink enough wine to forget that you told me that depressing story. I had enough drink. I, did, I had enough drink enough wine. <laughs> <laughs> unsung British musical hero breaking ground in both the rock and roll world and the world of alternate sexualities before either were cool and dying if not famous successful cool story bro 96 humans dying due to the inefficiency and inaccuracy and the idiocy of the bureaucracy involved in England and then subsequently blaming it on the fans of Liverpool football I'm sorry bros fuck David Fuckenstein cool story bro fucking field duck and fuck 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 David fucking fuck fuck David fuck David fucking field duck a fuck fuck duck fuck you probably fuck a duck because you're fucked you fucking field <laughs> David fucking field <laughs> and see. <laughs>